Mrs. Barbara Bush is, simply, a national treasure. Jean Becker spent almost 30 years working alongside Mrs. Bush and recently reached out to Bush family and friends to collect the advice that Mrs. Bush had given them over the years. Pearls of Wisdom, Little Pieces of Advice That Go a Long Way, is now a New York Times bestseller and features lessons learned from a life well-lived, including lessons learned while standing over a jigsaw puzzle by a Secretary of Defense. And one of the recurring themes was putting a puzzle together with her. And everyone from grandchildren to former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates. He was my favorite that Bob would bring up, do not put in the final puzzle piece. And I think there were, I had to do a whole section on puzzle pieces alone uh, because it was a recurring theme. We kick off season three by talking about Mrs. Barbara Bush's sense of humor and how she influenced those closest to her as well as her nation. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. We're opening season three of The Strategist with the esteemed Jean Becker, longtime advisor for President George H.W. Bush and Mrs. Barbara Bush. She was deputy press secretary for Mrs. Bush in the White House, and she was chief of staff for President Bush from 1994 until he recently passed away. And she's behind the new Barbara Bush book, Pearls of Wisdom, Little Pieces of Advice That Go a Long Way. Jean, thank you so much for spending some time with us to talk about Mrs. Bush. I'm so honored to be here. Thanks for having me. I've never been introduced as esteemed. It's This is new. Well, you're usually the honorable though, right? No. Yes. No, that person. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since we're here to talk about Mrs. Bush... Who better to co-host than Natalie Ganella-Platz, director of the Women's Initiative at the Bush Institute, who also heads up our First Ladies Initiative. Natalie, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of this. It's an honor, and I have the unique privilege of working on behalf of our First Ladies Initiative, which really highlights the unique influence of First Ladies globally, and what better example of that than Mrs. Barbara Bush. So we were, we were reading Pearls of Wisdom, obviously, over the weekend to get ready for this. And, and it's, it's really a, a delightful book that keeps Mrs. Bush kind of fresh in our memories. How did this project come about? You know, it's such a great question. It, it, this book has been in my heart for a long time. And there have she, of course, wrote her memoirs. And then a woman named Susan Page wrote her biography. So her story has been told by herself and, and by a biographer, a woman who the, you know, the biography, the classic biography, but I felt like there was something missing. For those of us who knew and loved her, she was the world's biggest advice giver. She had an opinion about everything. She wanted us all to live the best life we could. And she didn't hesitate to tell us how to do that. So I love what the 43rd president writes in the prologue. I think his first line is, there are those who say mother was bossy. But he goes on to say, for those of us who spent our whole life getting advice from Barbara Bush, we're at an advantage. It's the rest of everybody else who's at a disadvantage. We know a lot because Barbara Bush told us what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. So I thought it was time to tell the rest of the world. 
And you're kind of uniquely suited to put this together, having been with the family for so long. I have been with the family longer than I thought I would be. My very first day literally was the day that the 41st president became president of the United States, January 20th, 1989. I was one of Mrs. Bush's deputy press secretaries at the White House. And then I just never left. I kept thinking I would leave. But as you know, this family is not boring. No, no, they're not. I was about ready to leave, actually, in um, 1998-99. I told I was doing a book of letters that pres- for President Bush called All the Best. I told him at the end of that book, uh, I was probably going to. It was probably time for me to go. And then his oldest son decided to run for president of the United States of America. And President Bush said to me, "I totally am supportive of that. Would you please stay through the campaign?" We never talked about it again. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and that was 1999. That was it, is, it was through 2018 or 2019, right? There. Right. 2018. Yeah. He 20... died in November 30th, 2018. It's it's uh, it says a lot about the family that you'd want to mm-hmm. be in the same, working the same way for so long. And in the book, um, obviously there are so many anecdotes and insights from just everyone, family members, um, celebrities, uh, you name it, it's represented here. And in the um, foreword, you you talk about how you're not here to give your perspective, but I I was struck by your um, sort of the pearl of wisdom that you took with you from your experience, and that was choose happiness. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that and sort of why that stood out to you so so importantly in your experience with the Bushes? You know, I've, it was my sisters who proofread the book with me, for me, who said, Jean, you never say in the book what you learned from her. And of course, I learned a lot. And I decided I needed to pick one thing and write a little bit about it. And it was a short journey to decide what to say. Barbara Bush did not like whiny people. She didn't like people who complained about their life. And I have a wonderful plaque in my living room. It is something she so easily could have said. It says, life did not come with a remote. Get up and change it yourself. (laughs) That is not a quote from her, but it really defines what she means by saying, you have two choices. You can be unhappy and grumpy, or you can be happy and love your life. And what great advice. And who among us doesn't sit around some days and, you know, have a little pity party about, I wish I was skinny, I wish I was this, I wish I was that. And then you sort of, I think of her and I'm like, yeah, I'm happy. I don't have any problems. Right. Life life is good. The, The joyful nature in the book really kind of shows that. Well, and what's interesting about her, that advice and her joyful nature just think about what had happened to her by the time she turned 28. She lost lost a child to leukemia. The love of her life was shot down in World War II. Her mother was killed in a car accident when she was in her 20s and living a long way from home. George Herbert Walker Bush uprooted her from the Northeast, where all her family and friends lived, and moved her to Odessa, Texas, to where their first house they shared a bathroom with a mother-daughter prostitute team. Can you imagine? And so it isn't like her life was paved with gold. She went through some very tough times, but she always managed to find the silver linings. Mm -hmm. And 
Good for her. <laughs> well, one of the ways that she probably helped find that is is her sense of humor, which in the forward by President Bush, I think it's by sentence four or five that he's already talking about her, her famous sense of humor. Tell us about the famous Barbara Bush sense of humor. It's a lot like her oldest son. I think they're both famous for quips. Uh, her husband of 73 years was a great practical joke player. He loved to play practical jokes. Mrs. Bush just was a quipper. And in after they left the White House, she loved to go to Sam's Club and Walmart. They were obsessed with the big box stores. And I sort of loved going with her because it was an experience. And one of my favorite lines that she did over and over, people would come up to her and say, aren't you Barbara Bush? And she'd say, oh, no. I am much younger and prettier than she is. <laughs> and, I, you know, and she, she did that. She just always had a comeback for everything. And she just kept it loose. And she kept us loose. And she kept us from taking ourselves too seriously. One of my favorite um, things about Barbara Bush, and we previously, well, we had an exhibit on First Ladies here, and we had an exhibit about presidential retreats, and one of my favorite photos of her is in her very famous mismatched kids. And I think that that was the epitome epitome of not taking herself too seriously. And a lot of people don't know the kids story, but it was such a part of who she was in Kenny Bunkport, and I think really exuded her personality so it, well. It really did, Natalie. She embraced, so she loved... She knew there was a buzz out there about the fact. So while she was first lady, they used to give each other very romantic gifts. Gifts. President Bush, she was lamenting one day, you can't just buy regular tennis shoes anymore. You know, everything was running shoes, Reebok, you know, and she just wanted a pair of regular old-fashioned tennis shoes. So her husband being the President of the United States, I don't, I'm not sure, but he probably called the Keds Company and he bought her 30 pairs of Keds, all different colors. And she had the idea, she had two boxes, one left foot, one right foot. She threw them in there, and she would just draw out a pair of shoes and wear mismatched shoes. And she knew people were talking about it. And that just inspired her to do it even more. And her daughter, Doro, we just were talking about this, and there were people who thought maybe she was losing it a little bit. And we had to say, no, <laughs> she's just wearing her mismatched shoes. But it was a big part of her personality. Is that around the same time that uh, President Bush 41 started wearing fancy socks? Oh, gosh. You know what he says about his socks? <laughs> he swears that he always wore weird socks. I like that you said fancy. Uh, I mean, he has a pair of socks. He had a pair of socks that had Superman on mm -hmm. them. With, ca with little capes, as I with recall. little capes. Yeah. Those were the weirdest ones. He had a pair of socks with President Clinton's face on them. Uh, what President Bush swears, he always wore colorful socks, but no one noticed them until he was in a wheelchair. Oh, and then, and it really, the Houston Chronicle did a huge story about his socks. It was Marathon Sunday, and the Bushes were along the route watching the runners go by, and the Chronicle took a picture of him in his wheelchair, and I can't remember the socks he had on, but they were colorful and unusual, and the Chronicle did this story about George Bush and his socks, and President Bush was very, he says, I've worn sock, weird socks my whole life, but no one noticed him till now. You know, he at dedication here, I remember he had these... Uh, bright pink socks that he that he wore, and I, I was looking for a pair of just like I'm like these socks are great. I think he started a trend. I think he really did. I think he did. Who wear black and blue socks? Ugh, boring. 
Um, some of my favorite essays within uh, the book are the ones that um, their children wrote. Mm-hmm. So um, from Doro to, to President Bush to Jeb, I was just curious, you know, why do you feel that it was so important to start the book with their perspective? And I was really struck as well by the emphasis on the fact that, um, and I believe it was in Mrs. Bush's letter herself that she never sent her children that, you know, don't worry what, that your children don't listen to you, but, but worry that they're watching you. And I think that that was represented one in the, the personas that we know of, um, her descendants and, Mm -hmm. and who they became and the principled leadership they all exude, but her children and her appreciation for her children and setting a good example for her children was such a part of who she was. Why was that so important to her? Um, she was just a great mom. And, uh, you know, President Bush traveled a lot when the kids were growing up. And I used to love, people used to ask her, this would be part of her quipping. People used to say there was this myth that the Bush family had this whole plan about that one would become president and two would become governors and there would be senators. And and the truth is, there was no plan. And Mrs. Bush used to quip, I just wanted them to grow up. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't plot up who they would be. But she knew how, boy, was she a good role model. And, and as was her husband, of course. What was interesting about those five essays, it was such different things that the five kids learned from her. And it was just interesting to get all their perspective of of what they learned. But they all came back to the same thought. They learned how to make a difference, how to be a good citizen. My favorite line in the whole, one of my favorite lines in the whole book is Marvin, who apparently was born a little past her due date. And Marvin said, I learned to be on time. I was late only <laughs> once. <laughs> I love that line. Well, and I, li- and I like too though. Also in the uh, in the grandchildren section, you you said you're going to print the the responses to the letter. Like you you asked each. Uh, well, actually, why don't you tell the story? I'm I'm ruining it. Uh, that was such a Barbara Bush thing to do. <laughs> so I was a little frustrated with the grandkids. I'm not going to name names. You know who you are. But I emailed all of them. Send me your stories. And out of uh, 17 grandchildren, I got 15. And, but they were some, some emailed me right away. Some were a little slow. So I kept sending reminders of, okay, I need your email. I need your email. I'm not going to name names again, but two of the oldest grandchildren mm, could be Barbara and Jenna. <laughs> they were among the last ones to send me their story. So my original idea, and they did, and they were great. But I was going to put them in chronological order of, in, of their birth, which is what I did with the five kids and their essays. And then I thought, what would Barbara Bush do? I put them in the order in which they sent me their essays. Because some of the early, the ones who sent me their essays right away were among the younger ones. And they were being buried by, their, by the older kids. And I didn't think that was fair. Should Gigi be last? Right. Because, so I put them in the order, and uh, 
I don't know yet if any of them have noticed that. <laughs> I, I haven't heard yet. I love that too because it plays to the Bush family's strong appreciation for competition. Um, <laughs> and obviously, you know, it wasn't an apparent competition at the time, but right. you played out that way. Well, and I did in the competition thing, that's such a great point to make. I did one, the last reminder I sent out, I think I was missing five. And I said, I've heard from everybody but the five of you. If you don't want to be in the book, fine. And oh my gosh, they all panicked. And yes, 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 we want to be in the book. Uh, so uh, I wanted to put back to your question, I wanted to put the family first in the book just because the Bushes, so much about family. And they always talked about faith, family, and friends. So it just seemed natural that the five kids would go first and then the grandkids and then a bunch of nieces and nephews and first cousins and random people. So Mrs. Bush was kind of uniquely a, a, a figure that really did become America's grandma in a lot of ways. And, and Jeb himself calls her a national treasure in, in the book, Pearls of Wisdom. What, why, how, do you, how did that come about? From your perspective, having worked for her for so long and having seen the evolution of politics and, and everything and all the conversations of the country, how did, how did that role become hers more than any other first lady? She really tried to discourage being called America's grandmother. For some reason, she didn't like it. Uh, I, think, I think she was flattered by it. But she just thought, I think she was embarrassed by it, that people, she was beloved. And I think something that happened right after she became First Lady is just sort of a great example of why people began to think of her that way. In a couple of weeks after she became First Lady, she went to a place in Washington called Grandma's House, which provided residence facility for babies with AIDS who'd basically been abandoned by their mothers. And she, the first lady of the United States, pulls up in a motorcade and walks into that house and picks up an AIDS baby and holds the baby on her shoulder and and kissed on the baby and nuzzled the baby. Nobody was doing that in 1989 with AIDS patients, babies, adults, anybody. I, I, I like to joke that I think it was the first photo that went viral. We weren't using that terminology yet. <laughs> but that picture went around the world, and it was a game changer for patients with AIDS. And there are a lot of examples of she just knew how to make children, adults, everyone feel comfortable with her and with who they are. I have so many great photos of her reading to kids. And whether she likes it or not, it was like your grandmother reading to you. She was so engaging with kids and, and, you know, drawing them into the book, and they adored her. So the country adored her. In our work here at the Bush Center through the First Ladies Initiative, you know, we literally support First Ladies' offices in using their unique platform to affect change. And, and Mrs. Bush was part of our research study that we released a few years ago. And one of the, the key um, findings of that was the influence of soft power that First Ladies have at their disposal, and they all use it differently. Unfortunately, we tend to focus on those who, um, you know, have flagship initiatives. But Mrs. Bush's example and her use of soft power really bringing the voices, the experiences of those who often are overlooked to light was was so unique. 
Um, and, you know, she, I, I think of the Wellesley College speech and, and some of the backlash she mm-hmm. initially received when she was, was first announced as um, the speaker for commencement that year. But her remarks during that occasion were, were so profound and so on point highlighting that you can be powerful, you can have, you know, command boardrooms and and bully pulpits, but at the same time, family and how you you treat and make others feel is so important. And and I think that's really important and often gets forgotten and certainly being forgotten now, I think in the, in the current climate that, that we all find ourselves. And, you know, why was that so important to, to Mrs. Bush? And, and it's something she carried throughout her life. It's something she carried throughout her life. And I love that term, soft power. That's just a great term. Um, you know, one of her favorite first ladies was Lady Bird Johnson. And Lady Bird Johnson talked about the power of the bully pulpit. And, and her advice to future first ladies was, don't waste this opportunity because you have this short amount of time in which people will actually listen to you. And Mrs. Bush definitely embraced that advice. And even though literacy was her big thing, she used that soft power. I'm going to steal that from you because I love that term. Uh, one of my favorite stories about her as First Lady, this would be a great example of soft power. She woke up one morning right before, about a month before Christmas and all the malls in Washington, D.C. were going to kick out the Salvation Army bell ringers. They decided that they were loud, they were noisy, people didn't want to pay attention, they harassed the shoppers. There was one mall in D.C. who was going to allow the bell ringers in, and she was livid. So she called her press office, and she said, get the press, go to the Mazda Gallery, find the bell ringer, and I'll be there in two hours. So I got the press together, and we went to the mall, and the press is what's going on? And the poor bell ringer is like, what's going on? And I honestly didn't know. Well, in she swoops. And my favorite part of the story is she put $11 in the red bucket. I did want to say to her, you don't have a 20. but (laughs) (laughs) I think it's all she had at her billfold. But she used her bully pulpit that day to say to the malls in DC, don't you dare. Well, that was it. The balls reopened their doors. I mean, her the first lady's pictures on the front page of the Washington Post. The malls were embarrassed. They reopened their doors. And I didn't even appreciate until she died. The Salvation Army, the National Salvation Army, put out a statement and said that Barbara Bush probably single-handedly saved the, our bell ringing campaign because they think other malls across the country would have followed the lead of the D.C. malls. And she didn't let them get away with it. And it's just a great example of using her soft power to say, not so fast. And that was part of her power. She didn't hesitate to tell you what she thought. That's a... uh that's one of those stories I, I hadn't heard before. I've heard a lot of, of stories from about Mrs. Bush over the years. That was one, that's one that I'd, I'd never heard before. And it, it kind of goes to show that she had just done so much through, mm-hmm. these, through the years. Yeah. One of the, I love the passage in this book about how, about jigsaw puzzles, because you think, how can you get, how can you get advice from a topic as even, even out of jigsaw puzzles? It wasn't just one piece of advice. It was multiple pieces of advice out of jigsaw puzzles. Were you expecting that when you sat down to, to put these stories together? Andrew, it was one of the big shocks of the book. I So I emailed just all the family and just random friends 
And of course, since the book has been published, I've thought about 15 more people I should have emailed. But I just started emailing random people. And one of the recurring themes was putting a puzzle together with her. And everyone from grandchildren to former Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates. (laughs) He was my favorite that Bob would bring up, do not put in the final puzzle piece. And I think there were, I had to do a whole section on puzzle pieces alone uh, because it was a recurring theme. I didn't put puzzles together with her because I was afraid to. (laughs) I knew she was a little picky about it, but it was all about you don't put the last piece in. And and, there, and also that you don't you don't move pieces around without a purpose, which I never thought about. Because that's my I see puzzles. First thing I do is start to shuffle. And you don't hover. Around. Yeah. Well, I think it was one of the grandkids said, "Don't hover over the puzzle table." Uh, Norma Major, the former first lady of Great Britain, one of her stories is about I was putting together a puzzle with Barbara Wynn, and it was uh, the her puzzle table in Kennebunkport was one of the focal points of the living room. I never sat there. so what what was it like being deputy press secretary for her like what was that experience like for you in the in the early 90s late 80s um i had no idea what i was doing i'd been a newspaper reporter my whole life well my life was short at that point i've been a newspaper reporter for 10 years i grew up on a farm in missouri i didn't leave the country until actually with I was with USA Today, I went to Moscow in 1987 to cover President Reagan's trip to Moscow it was the first time I ever left the United States of America. So a couple of years later, I'm literally traveling all over the world for the First Lady of the United States. It was unreal. It was surreal. It was such a great honor. It was a lot of hard work. But I will not whine about that. It was a great experience. One of the things you mentioned, Moscow, I mean, what a unique place to be your first international trip abroad. Yes. Um, but I think of Mrs. Barbara Bush and her relationship with Raisa Gorbachev and um, just how that relationship was so important. And, and she even projected her love of literacy mm-hmm. into the relationship there. And I think of the Make Way for Duckling mm-hmm. statue that that they then wanted um, or, or had in, in, in Russia as a result of it. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about her relationship with her fellow First Ladies, because up until that point in time, we really didn't see a lot of international First Ladies working together. And Mm-mm. from Mrs. Barbara Bush's point forward, you know, that has become the, the norm rather than the exception. And, you know, she saw, again, going back to soft power, the value of relationship building and and finding common ground and who, who better to relate to than another, another first lady. She was a leader, uh, a natural born leader and dominated the room. I used to watch her walk in and, and, and they all gravitated towards her. And one of the essays in the book is by Mila Mulroney, who was the first lady of Canada and who just absolutely adored her. And Mrs. But, Going back to Raiza, Raiza and Nancy Reagan did not get along at all. And I think Mrs. Bush made it her mission to get along with her. I think she truly felt, and I think she was right, it might actually help with her husband's work. If the two wives could get along, maybe the working relationship between Mikhail Gorbachev and the President of the United States would be better. And she and Raiza became huge friends. 
And she took her to Wellesley with her um, because it was in the middle of a very important summit meeting. And so she just took Raiza to Wellesley with her. And for some odd reason, she wanted to take Raiza to see the Make Way for Duck Clean statue in Boston Commons. So that was my sight that day. I cannot tell you how many people say to me, oh, were you at Wellesley? No, I was at the Make Way for Duckling <laughs> statue. That was my event. And I might add, I totally lost control of the press. They were running all over. It was a disaster of an event. But We've all been uh, there. It didn't matter. But I lost control of the press, and they were jumping over the ducklings. But it was awful. Yeah, I got the what for on the way home. But, uh, but Raiza, what's so interesting, which fascinated me, is that Raiza Gorbachev fell in love with that statue. And sure, those little statues, I guess I should say, and they're now in Moscow, although sadly, several of them have gotten stolen. So Mrs. Bush called the sculptor and say, we need some ducklings for this park in Moscow. I mean, you can't make that stuff up. I love it. Well, you know what? I... It had completely slipped my mind that Raisa Gorbachev was there at Wellesley. She herself also made remarks. It was Mrs. Bush's idea to have Mm -hmm. them both there. But I remember the Make Way for Ducklings. You do? I love that. Your effort is not lost on me. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much. I I wish I could remember why she... It was was sort of an odd add-on to what had already been a huge day. But she wanted to show her those ducks and... The rest is history. She <laughs> loves those ducks. Well, we are pretty much out of time. You're, I've gotten about three text messages already from people in the building. Like, oh, Jean is here. I need to. You need to make sure she comes over to my place next. So we're gonna. We got to let you go. But before we let any guest go, we always ask one of two questions, and we're gonna throw this one out at you now. So be ready. Um, what are we not talking enough about as a nation that we should be talking about? Oh, I love you for asking that question. Oh, wait, um, just now? I thought I thought we were kind of friends up to this point. So in the book, pages 110 through 112, I've been reading this at the end of all the book events. Uh, it's, it's excerpts from her 1991 commencement speech. She was not happy about something going on in the United States. And I've done some research trying to figure out what was going on. And I think it was maybe early campaign stuff. There had been horrible race riots in LA. But she she was unhappy with America. And just to read a little bit of this, she said, she said to students that whole commencement season, I would like for you to think about your relationships in a broader sense, the way you feel about and interact with people beyond your loved ones. Real tolerance is an ideal our country has strived for since its beginning. America was, after all, founded as a haven of tolerance for people of all kinds. We've made progress, but we have a long way to go. We have a proud legacy of freedom and independent thought, but we can be better. You can be better. We should all be alarmed at the rise of intolerance in our land and the growing tendency to use intimidation rather than reason. She talked about bullying. Bullying is outrageous and not worthy of a great nation grounded in the values of tolerance and respect. She wrote this 29 years ago. Mm -hmm. Let us fight back against the boring politics of division and derision. Let's trust our friends and colleagues to respond to reason. 
We must build a society in which people can join in common causes without having to surrender their identities. It is such a powerful message for today. And I think if she were here, this is what she'd be talking about. She would not be happy with anybody. I'm not talking politics here. Both sides need to find a way to be more tolerant and respectful of each other. I think this is the message that she would want to give, and people have really been reacting positively. They, they clap. They, they hear her voice. I'm bringing her back. Well, amen to that. We're glad you're doing it. Pearls of Wisdom is available now in bookstores everywhere. It's just a, it's a delightful read. Jean, you, it's just a fantastic job of putting it together. Thank you for thank you for doing it for spending time with us here. Today. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Learn more about the Bush Institute's work on First Ladies at www.bushcenter.org slash firstladies. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about the Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.